Welcome to Pod Me If You Can, I'm David Farrell. And I'm Lloyd Hughes. And today we're interviewing a man who has met some of Hollywood's best. Good friend of the show, Grant Hawkins, a.k.a. Hawk. Hawk, thanks for sitting down with us today. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Not a problem at all. So you have met some huge actors, and uh, we were just curious how this all came about. Well, it, it dates back to the 90s when I was uh, working in radio. Initially, I was an announcer, but um, around 98, um, I applied for and got a job as a breakfast show producer in Sydney at uh, Mix 106.5. The nature of the job as a producer is you liaise with, whether it's record companies, uh, TV production, uh, TV houses, or movie studios for various interviews. Um, try and imagine as a as a publicist for say 20th Century Fox and you've got a movie coming out and you know that you've got uh, Vin Diesel coming to do a PR tour or Arnold Schwarzenegger you have a hit list of people you want to get you would get the Kyle and Jackie O show you couldn't then it, it was well it was on nights but you would get various programs you'd be looking for Denton you'd be looking for Today FM Breakfast and so on and it was my job to actually get in touch with the various publicists and make them aware of the breakfast show we were doing so that when someone was in town they would call us and say, we have, you know, Robin Williams in town. Do you want to do an interview? Duh. Um, <laughs> you can hear that voice for radio, can't you? <laughs> <laughs> well, it was, it, it, was a, it, was a, it was a funny start because when I got there, um, they'd had a couple of different lineup changes on the radio station. And I do remember, I don't know if it was uh, movie houses, but I do remember ringing a couple of publicists and they asked me that horrible, almost, you know, painful question, who is your breakfast announcer? Which clearly meant they didn't know the station existed, they didn't listen to it, Mm -hmm. well, they knew it existed, but they weren't aware of the station. And it was basically my job to build bridges uh, with the various publicists to have them think of us top of mind, to come to us with interviews. There would have been less internet radio then as well, so they wouldn't have been able to stream your channel uh, overseas you could stream then but it was less popular it was uh, it was less common in fact I do remember I don't know when it was maybe in 99 uh, we got a couple of emails from people in San Francisco or Florida or somewhere like that oh, I love listening to your show blah 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 and my boss said I don't know why I'm bothering spending this money for all these uploads because we were getting billed for it uh, for the various uh, the, the, the traffic that was created and he couldn't see the point because he said well it's no point in them hearing a, you know, a Colgate ad in San Francisco we're not getting any money for it that was the attitude back in 99 now it's completely flipped on its head if you're not online you just know where I am so mm. yeah speaking of which you can go to www.podmeifyoucan.com and listen to any of our previous episodes <laughs> for free mind you yeah <laughs> so let's start with an Australian uh, Jeffrey Rush promoting Shakespeare in Love this is 1998 it would have been uh, the famous Buckles story I, I I'm, I'm really annoyed that I that I didn't keep the grab for some reason um, I had a habit of uh, when I would do interviews with anyone who'd won an Oscar I would say where do you keep your Oscar with the idea being is you know when their Oscars were on we would on the breakfast show just play these little grabs of people like you see in the actual Oscar telecast where they're talking about their favorite films um, I remember talking to him and he'd made um, there were a couple of films that he'd made back to back he was in, he was in pre-production when we did the interview he was in pre-production for Les Mis and I think Elizabeth was about to come out and he'd already done Shakespeare in Love with doing that and so on and I, and I did actually ask him if he had some sort of fetish for buckled shoes sure um, which he was um, which he thought was quite funny uh, and then reminded me that he did Mystery Men where a guy used to throw forks I was about so, to bring that up yeah, yeah. <laughs> hang on a second I played a superhero yes but did your shoes have buckles on them we want to know uh, but no I can tell you one, the, the one thing I remember about about talking with Jeffrey Rush was uh, where he keeps his Oscar and completely and utterly accidental 
Remember, he won it for Shine. Um, he keeps it on a piano in his house. He got back from LA uh, from the ceremony, had it in, a, in his briefcase, opened his briefcase up and just walked around, just went, oh, dunk, and stuck it on the piano, not thinking. And then about two days later, walked past and went, oh my God, <laughs> oh well, I'll just leave it there then, shall I? And for as far as I'm aware, it's still sitting on that piano. Yeah, it makes sense for Shine. I mean, a great pianist. Mm. Fantastic. Um, have you guys seen Shakespeare in Love? Did you have oh, to yeah, watch I, the film beforehand? Yeah. Oh, or? yeah, you always did. Um, um, I, I can't, I'm not going to name names, but I do know of one radio program in Sydney where they were approached about an interview with Matt Damon and they couldn't be bothered to go and see one of the Bourne films, so they were told you can't do the interview. No, as a publicist, they're not going to... The, the, the talent you're talking about here, the actors, whoever they are, when they're in town, they're on a very limited schedule. And if you've ever seen Notting Hill... Um, that whole thing where he goes to the hotel and he gets whipped through various rooms and, and your time's up, I'm afraid. It's like that. They're on a very tight schedule and the publicists know fine well that when you get on your show and say, hey, we're talking to Ashley Judd or, or Sharon Stone or whatever, that is currency for the program. Um, and therefore they have you. So they go, you know what? We're not going to give you an interview with this talent if you haven't been bothered to give two hours of your time to go and see their film. Mm-hmm. So... Wow. Um, the next interview you did was a- Ashley Judd. Yeah, that was an odd one. That was that was that was um, that was quite um, that was quite different. Um, first of all, she wasn't that well established at that stage. She hadn't done. Uh, she she'd had the supporting role in uh, Time to Kill, and and I remember uh, one of the publicists rung up and said, "Hey, we've got this movie coming out with Ashley Judd um, called uh, Double Jeopardy, and we're getting her in town next Tuesday." Uh, for some interviews would you be interested in doing the interview and uh, I approached the breakfast announcer about doing the interview and the first thing he said was who's she this is going to be fun I think Ashley Judd yeah personally I'm thinking I don't really like Ashley Judd that much and there seemed to be this window of time where everybody did yes yes there was and that was around 98, 99 it was around Double Jeopardy Kiss the Girls you know so and um I know that uh we went and saw the film and I can tell you now it was an odd one that one because we went and saw the film in October and uh, I'll make this up, but say it was October the 10th or something like that. But the movie was coming out January the 10th. And the way I sold it to the announcer, who it's his show, so he's got to agree to it and want to do it and believe in it's worth doing. Mm-hmm. And I just said, you know, the thing is, the movie's coming out the second week of January. We're back that week from holidays. We'll already have something in the can to play. So we can come back and say, hey, by the way, and, um, and that was how I sold it on it. But the reason why she was doing the interview in October was because, and I'll get this name wrong, she was seeing, and I don't know if she still is, um, the IndyCar driver, Daniel Franchetti. Okay. And she was over for the IndyCar race on the Gold Coast. Hmm. And the, the, the publicity team, I think it was with Fox, they'd convinced her to fly to Sydney for a day. And uh, they rang us up and said, do you want to interview? We said yes. And then we went and saw a special screening of it. Well, we saw it in October. This is way before downloads became popular. We saw a screening of it in October. It didn't come out till January. So I do remember being around a bunch of people at Christmas and someone saying, oh, I like the looks of that new movie. I said, that's ah, really good. How have you seen it? Oh, I saw it two months ago. Mm. Um, but, I, you know, it was that little blip, as you say, that she just had this little window of two or three years where she was pretty, pretty hot property, and then mm. it sort of just tailed away. Um, the other thing I do remember about doing the interview was she was on crutches. She'd been out on Sydney Harbour the day before jet skiing and put her foot out to turn, I don't know why you would do that, and sprained her ankle because she was going so fast that when she put her foot down... And, uh, yeah, so that's the first and only interview I ever conducted with the person on a chase lounge with a foot up. (laughs) 
How do you see these movies? Do you see them on DVD or do you actually no, go to theaters? I can't speak for now. I don't know now, and I would imagine now it's the same. Basically, most of the production houses, oh, production, most of the, the units, whether it's Disney, whether it's um, 20th Century Fox, they have private um, theaterettes that they utilize. Um, this, is, this is in Sydney. Uh, you can go to uh, 20th Century Fox offices, which is on Clarence Street. Now, the offices are on the third floor. The featurette is on the sixth floor. And it's like, um, do you know, uh, tug your memory now, do you know that little screening booth that they had in Jurassic Park where they were looking at the yeah. animated thing where there's like three rows of chairs? It's the, like that. The DNA. Yeah, yeah. 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 It's the, the one for 20th Century Fox is like that. You walk in, you've got a big screen in front of you and two rows of chairs. And basically when they say, we want you to come along for a screening, um, you rock up there and it may well be that Margaret Pomerantz is there, maybe Dave will be there. Oh, cool. I don't yeah, recall yeah. them ever being there together. Because that obviously depends on their schedule, because uh, when the publicist rings, oh, we've got a screening uh, Tuesday at 2 o'clock, Wednesday at 1 o'clock, and Thursday at 11, or whatever, and you pick one. There were exceptions to the rule. Uh, Mission Impossible 2, that was held at a cinema at midday, and everybody that was everybody in media went along, because it was the only preview screening they had. Gladiator, they held it at the, um, the special screening room at Planet Hollywood. Same thing again. And the one movie I didn't see as a preview was Saving Private Ryan because I got there and they said, sorry, we're full. Because right. it was a buzz movie. So, you know, you'd get a phone call, hey, do you want to do Double Jeopardy? Oh, yeah, you'd rock up. There'd be three or four people there. But the buzz films, Gladiator, Saving Private Ryan, you better be there on time because, you know, otherwise, you know, there'll be no seats left. So you didn't see Saving Private Ryan before you interviewed Vin Diesel? No, I saw it afterwards, but I'd also been... Uh, one of the announcers who was working at the station had seen it. Okay. And I actually said to the publicist when I got there, I said, I need to see this for the interview. I'm sorry, I can't let you in. We haven't got any chairs. Uh, and they were trying to fudge in a new, another screening prior to that, and I just said, look, I'll have to go with what I've been told and the EPK, which is a, a electronic press kit, which had a, a, about eight minutes of footage. Do you ever get any good gifts in those press kits? No. Oh. Well, not that I can think of. Uh, the electronic press kits... Well, you're going back to 98, 99, when a lot of them were still video. Okay. Uh, a couple were bleeding through on DVD, but DVD itself was relatively new. Hmm. Uh, in fact, during that time, I did go to the launch of DVDusergroup.com, uh, which I think Sony launched. Um, yeah, DVD was pretty new back then, and I was doing a lot of... Uh, I was doing a lot of work with DVD because I was doing a feature show. Sorry, a friend of mine was doing a feature show in Melbourne uh, about technology, and he'd have me on each week to do a DVD review and talk about extra features and so on, so I got involved that way. But the EPKs are literally that. They're a media thing. You'll see it on the movie show with Margaret and David. You'll see it... Um they're clips and things that yeah. they need to promote the film. Yeah, the, the, the EPK comes out with designated clips that the studio wants you to see. They, they pick maybe six or seven minutes worth of the movie. Um, and it's, there, are, there is the odd occasion where they'll give you a copy of the film. Uh, I can't immediately... Well, the only one I can think of was when they did an animated version of The Magic Pudding, um, which, which came out in 2001. And we were sent a copy of the actual movie, and that was because it was a kid's movie... Uh, we were doing the interview and it was just easier to do it that way now generally speaking it's a video uh, a book a booklet a brochure uh, you know paperwork on it and um, maybe the odd photo but there's no there's no gifts in there I've got to ask how do you formulise your questions like after you watch the movie do you just like have to scramble for questions before you interview them, no, no 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 the, 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 as every likelihood you'll see the movie on Tuesday and do the interview on Thursday oh okay right. yeah I can't recall uh, the, oh no hang on the Mel Gibson one that was that was the only one the Mel Gibson one they hadn't finished What Women Want 
it hadn't finished and we went into a screening of it where we saw about 25 minutes yeah. it's hazy now it's 12 years ago I, it, and, and he did apologise at the press conference he did say I'm sorry you couldn't see the whole thing mm. it's still being made but generally speaking yeah you'd see the movie maybe a day or two later you'd go and do the interview and yeah. did you have a set like uh, parameters like you could only ask certain questions or you um I suppose was anything off the like yeah. off the table. You couldn't talk about certain things. <laughs> <laughs> um, we never got told that. Uh, um, I think that there was always a um, there was an expectation that you'd be professional. Um, I did hear a story, and I'm going to stress this. I can't clarify it. It's secondhand, but I did hear a story that uh, Jodie Foster's people said they would not let Carl Sandlands talk to her ever again. Uh, this is hearsay I don't know if it's true or not but I was told that it was like she's never speaking to him ever again because the first thing he said was I saw the movie it's not bad why haven't you come out and said to people you're a rug muncher or something or you're a, you're a gay oh wow and, right. and, and she just sort of like went uh <laughs> <laughs> and it yeah and apparently she wasn't very happy about that she was there to promote whatever film so there's there's an expectation of common sense uh, y- you know um, and, and, and the other thing too is uh, no matter how many times you do these things, and I went to a lot of press conferences, more more for musicians than, than actors, but it's really actually um, uh, nerve-wracking to ask a question because you're in a room full of maybe 30 or 40 of your peers, and it's like being in high school again. You know, you didn't want to put your hand up? Yeah, yeah. yeah it's like that. You, you don't, you know, it's almost like, I don't really want to ask that question in case it's stupid. Mm. Um, but, you know, then you end up at a press conference where no one asks questions. Um, so it's finding a balance but yeah as far as what questions to ask it's just common sense so I want to talk then about your most probably intimidating interview uh, subject which would have been Vin Diesel surely <laughs> no well uh, uh, that was an odd one because I went to the breakfast announcer said do you want to talk to Vin Diesel and the first thing he said was who's he <laughs> Um, this is 1998 or so. Yeah, this is before The Pacifier and Fast The and Fast Furious. and Furious. And, 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 and I think it might have even been before Pitch Black or at least before it became a cult film. Right. Um, I'm trying to remember. If, yeah, I can't remember if that was before Pitch Black. But yeah, but anyway, he was the guy that came out to promote the movie. And uh, it, it was just interesting talking to him. It was, it was, first of all, it was that thing I just mentioned. It was a bit nerve-wracking because you go, geez, I've only seen about eight minutes of footage. So you, you, you find yourself asking generic questions, like what was it work on the shoot? What was it like on the shoot? Was it, was it raining or was that manufactured? You know, because mm. those scenes, the, you know, were you just in the rain or was there big sprinklers going down or were you just standing around getting wet for five hours? I find it interesting that they sent Vin Diesel out to promote Saving Private Ryan. I mean, is that because no one else was available? I mean, there's bigger cast members in there. Uh, that I, I'm going to give you an educated guess on that. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say that uh, Tom Hanks was too busy. It was written in his flyer to only do America. You've got to remember for a Hollywood person to come out to Australia, it's, I think it's something like a 14-hour flight. Uh, my experiences tended to be that the bigger-name actors that we had the chance to talk to in that period when I was in Sydney all had a vested interest in making money. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tom Hanks didn't really have an interest in that. It's, as far as I'm aware, it's written into their contract. They're, they're contracted, for example, to be on the shoot for, say, 36 days. They have four days of, of, of looping expected, uh, two days of reshoots, and 21 hours of media at a designated time. And, of course, it's got to be all written in to fit around other shooting schedules and, and so on. Mm. Um, because it is that junket thing again where a lot of people get whizzed into, say, L.A., 
and there, it's the hotel room, like you see. You see it on um, Sunrise or the Today Show or whatever. You always see actor on one side, whopping great big picture of the movie poster behind them, and nodding person on the other side. Yep. Sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes, those nodding person on the other side, they are done after the actor has left the room because they only have one camera. So they'll ask the questions which are written down, he'll answer them, and then he walks out, and then they put the camera on her or him, and they go, <laughs> blah, 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 and then it gets edited together. Um, but as far as Vin Diesel's concerned, it would have just been, well, we, do you want to go to Australia? And he was starting out his career. He's gone, free trip to Australia, yeah, why not? Mm. Um, but then it's, it's, it's difficult for the publicity team because then they're going, do you want to interview Vin Diesel? Or who's he? No, we don't. We'd rather interview Tom Hanks. Well, wouldn't everybody, mm. but he's not here. Yeah. So after he said, who's that, and you told him, <laughs> was there any trouble convincing to um, interview Vin Diesel? Or? No, that's what I, I did the interview because uh, he didn't want to do it. And I, and I went back to, um, you see, the other thing is, the nature of the beast was, uh, let's say it was, it was Sony Pictures, I can't remember, it might have been Fox, but uh, they're not about to fly people from Brisbane, they're not about to fly people from Melbourne. And a lot of these a lot of these talent actors and I go back to musicians as well they don't like doing things on the phone or they don't like doing things with people they can't see it's just a, a, a attitudinal thing um, so what I ended up doing with Vin Diesel is I did what's called a noddy or what we call a noddy which is um, where you go in you ask various questions and then you package it up and send it out to the other four stations like our own homemade EP, EPK okay. so I'm sending out an interview with his responses my questions are in the middle, and then, like, Melbourne would get it, like, uh, uh, mix in Melbourne, and their morning's announcer will go, ah, oh, well, we'll run this year, cool. And they, they will ask the same questions and insert their announcer asking the questions, so it still goes to where. And whoever it was, Fox or Sony, is happy because they're getting publicity for their film. They don't care that I'm not the guy doing the interview. They just want their person on and people talking movie. Hmm. Let's talk Hugh Grant, I think, because... Uh, <laughs> when he swore. Oh, God, I cringe. <laughs> he was here to promote Mickey Blue Eyes. Yeah, I know. 1999. You just, you, just touched a, you just touched... I just touched upon it then. You said about these big names that come out. Why did he come out to promote Mickey Blue Eyes and not Bridget Jones' Diary or Notting Hill? Probably because he was the executive producer. Which means... So it's in his interest. Well, yeah, because every time someone hands out some money at the box office, he gets a dollar fifty or something. So, um... But yeah, I'd only really seen him in um, Four and a Funeral, Notting Hill, and uh, didn't really pay that much attention to the other ones, and I, I can't even remember what they were. You know, there was that dabble into the thriller tension, the, the sort of tense one with Gene Hackman in the hospital, Desperate mm -hmm. Measure or something. Isn't he sort of always playing himself? He's not, well, that's what I thought. He, he always seemed to be playing this foppish kind of, you know, guy, you know, uh, losing it. And I know he swears in Four Weddings and a Funeral, but we asked him a question. We said something, I can't remember the context, but something was said about Jack Nicholson getting a big payday for, um, for Batman. Mm-hmm. And something about how actors get paid a lot of money. I can't remember the context of it. And he just turned around and he goes, oh, well, that's what we call f you money. And I'm like, he swore. <laughs> You're not supposed to do that in an interview. We can't play that on the air. Um, but what he referred to is, um, what he was referring to is uh, pension plan. You, you do that crappy film. I'm not saying that Batman was a crappy film, but you do that movie where you get a big payday. I can't remember how he worded it now, but he said something along the lines of, you get your big payday, and then whatever script comes in, you can go, yeah, fuck that. <laughs> I'm guessing that uh, you guys had to do what we'll do with this podcast, and that's just bleep out. Yeah, you can. <laughs> yeah, whenever they bleeped anything out, I was saying sponge. <laughs> there you go. 
I've got to ask, Pierce Brosnan. Ah, yeah, Pierce Brosnan, that was funny. I, I don't know if he realised it was a radio interview, but he did actually decide there was a specific side of the room he needed to sit on. Uh, I don't even realise there were no cameras there. You know, this is my best side. It's radio. <laughs> uh, same thing. Why was Pierce Brosnan in Australia? He was promoting uh, the Thomas Crown Affair, which coincidentally he produced. Um, I really like that film. I think it's got like a quiet charm to it. Yeah, I... Yeah, I don't know. I'm a fan of Steve McQueen, so yeah, it was. I didn't. I didn't mind it. I didn't mind the film. Um, the thing that I oh oh god, I cringe now when I think of oh god. Yeah, uh, one of those things as a as a as a as a media person in that in that situation, you don't want to look like a fan. You don't want to look like an idiot. And that was one of those rare times where I had to actually almost bow my head and apologise because I had to get his autograph for my nephew. Do you mind signing this? It's not for me. <laughs> Because mm. you, you know, everyone poses for a photo because you can put it on the website, whatever you can do that. Uh, yep. But you know, can I have your autographs a bit? Uh, not really. But yeah, that was the one time I had to get an autograph. But yeah, he was he was promoting. Um, I never knew that was a shameful Crown. thing to ask. It just makes you look a little bit like a fan, and that's just, <laughs> it. Just it just looks yeah yeah. It's, but you would have been a fan like Anthony Daniels, you were saying. You were a fan of Star Wars, so you would have been a fan of him. He played C-3PO. Yeah. Oh, no, I'll tell you a funny story about that. Um, well, I thought it was funny anyway. I was producing breakfast, so my day started at 20 past four. Uh, well, no, my day started at four, but I was at work by 20 past. Uh, and we'd do the show. And, it, it, you know, you just never knew from day to day. You just never know what was going to happen. So you may well be finishing work at 10.30. There are other days you finish at 6.00. Certainly when the Olympics were on, I was there until 10 o'clock at night. Um, and I do remember walking into the office. It was about 6 o'clock at night, so I'd been there 14 hours. And the phone was ringing. I picked up, and it was uh, one of the publicists from Fox. Uh, it might have been Saskia. I can't remember. But it was like, hi, Grad. How are you? I'm like, yeah, good. Yeah, good. How's it going? She goes, yeah, good. Um, just wondering, we're, we're doing a promotion at the moment, and we've got the opportunity for George to talk to Anthony Daniels. Would you be interested? And I said those famous words that I'll never forget. Who's Anthony Daniels? Mm. <laughs> I've been at work 14 hours, you know. As I was saying them, I could see them coming out of my mouth and I wanted to pull them back in. Because <laughs> I'm going, oh my God, I'm an idiot. Um, and that was, one of those, that was one of those interviews where he didn't want to do the interview. It was, it was set up to promote uh, a special release, a special VHS release of Star Wars. And... Um, uh, it was done on the, on the phone. He was in London. And um, I did the same thing. I, I said to the publicist, I said, look, George doesn't want to do the interview, but I'm more than happy to do the interview and leave gaps. As long as you tell him that there might be some slight gaps because we're doing cutaway interviews around the network, I will send it around the network um, because that way I got to talk to Anthony Daniels. And he was, mm. he was lovely. He was really nice. Um, uh, just, he said something really quite charming because he asked me, see, I, I saw Star Wars when I was 12. And and he made some comment about Star Wars, and I said, "Well, I'm, I hope you don't mind me saying this, uh, but I, I saw it as a kid. I was 12." And he said, "I'm just insane, incredibly jealous. I really am so jealous because I would like to have been able to go into a theatre and see it without knowing how they pull the strings." Mm. And I went, "Wow, that's that's actually I'd never thought of it like that." But yeah, as a, and remember, a lot of the stuff they were doing was being done in post production. A lot, all those. All those, you know, start, the X-wing fight, the, the end, and the Death Star, and all that kind of stuff was added in, in 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 post-production. So for a lot of those actors, and this is 1977, they saw Star Wars at the cinema. They 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 just thought we're working on this silly movie with a couple of robots, one of which doesn't work. 
Um, he kicked it. There's this scene in the film where he kicks it, and he said, I actually did kick it because I was sick, and it was like, take 13. Oh, it didn't move again. Bang. <laughs> um, but he, he did say it's quite funny. I, I can't see the scenes. It might have been, you know, the scene where the sand people have attacked Luke, and they oh, go, yeah. oh, 3PO, and they go to get him, and he's on the rock. I think it's that scene where he's not wearing the legs. Oh, right. Because cause I said, I, I did say in the interview, uh, you know, was there ever a point where you went in and said, you know, how much are you going to see of me? And, and they said, oh, we're just seeing you from the waist up. And he went, oh, so I don't need to wear the legs. And he says, somewhere in my, in my you know, cupboard somewhere, there's a photo of me with the, the helmet, the chest plate, the arms, and then tights <laughs> and sandals. <laughs> he says, I don't know. I was sort of like, you know, the Android equivalent of a newsreader, you know, shirt, tie, jacket and board shorts did you ever take the opportunity to go I've always wanted to ask this like a dream question like with Pierce Brosnan surely you brought up because you're a big fan of James Bond yeah um, did you ever want to talk about that with him like how he f- faced that legacy entry that sort of thing? had he done it yet he would have. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. He took in, 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 in Thomas Cranfield. He talked about um, world is not enough because purely because of the nature of Hollywood. Uh, Thomas Cranfield came out. Uh, within two months of World Is Not Enough. Like, Thomas Cranefield came out, World Is Not Enough came out two months later. So he was happy to talk about it. Uh, mm-hmm. And he talked famously, I may have heard him say it before, but he talked about how the first film he ever saw was Goldfinger uh, and how here he was years later playing James Bond. And, and uh, you know, he was he was quite open to talk about that. Um, if I'm allowed to digress slightly in regards to your yeah, question, sure. uh, the one question I did ask that sticks in my mind was when we interviewed Henry Winkler, which no, it wasn't film, it was through Happy Days and a musical. And uh, I, I wasn't doing the interview, the breakfast announcer was doing the interview, but I said to him, I said, I really want to know why he played the Fonz for so long and, and whether or not um, he gets annoyed or it bothers him that everyone just thinks, you know, are oh, you the Fonz? And that show hasn't been on for 20 years. Um, so we, we went to the interview and uh, I'm, I'm sitting in the middle with the audio gear and I'm monitoring all this and, and, uh, and George actually says to me, he says, um, he says uh, so you know, why did you play the character for so long? He said, well, uh, and this is, you asked me what questions you really want to ask and, and I'd always be curious about that. And he said, you know what, I'd been a jobbing actor for about 10 years before I got the role and when I got the role, it wasn't the main role. It became the main role by about series three. So my part grew in that series. Because by about series four, I knew that I, the Fonz was so big by then, by series four, it was so huge, uh, that I knew that whatever I did, it was always going to be attached to me anyway. Plus, I loved going to work every day. I loved the people I was working with. They kept offering me more money. And the alternative was I could walk away from this and be you know, out of work for the next two years. Why would I walk away from something I enjoy doing? And then George said, but doesn't it bother you that you're always related to being the Fonz? You're always, everyone just says you're the Fonz. And I'll never forget this. It's one of the best quotes. He said, I was at a charity fundraiser, which I'm a patron of. And I was sitting in the audience and uh, this little girl tapped me on the shoulder. And I turned around and she looked and she went, Fonzie. And I just went, hey. And then the woman that was sitting next to this little girl started crying. And I, unusual reaction. Mm. And I, I said, what's the matter? Are you okay? It's okay. She didn't bother me. It's like, and then the woman said, no, no, you don't understand. My daughter's autistic. She's never spoken before. Wow. That's the first thing she's ever said. And he looked at George and he went, and you know what, George? If putting on a leather jacket and sticking your thumb in the air can have that kind of reaction, then I'm a lucky man. 
And I'm sitting there monitoring this, trying not to cry, <laughs> also thinking, well, I know how the interview is going to end now when I edit it, because that's the bit we're going to close on. But he was so humble. And I'd, I'd met a few, which I won't name, but I'd met a few that were a bit more pretentious. And he was just so humble in his... Uh, you know, he was just so nice to meet you and, and every day. That, that was Henry Winkler. There are others. I mean, Ashley Judd was lovely. Um, I, I can't think of anyone that would be you know, like obnoxious, but, um, yeah, yeah. but um, you know, that's one that sticks in my mind when you say a specific question. I, I watched Happy Days as a kid, so I was curious about that. I can't really think of anything, you know, maybe with Anthony Daniels, I asked a stupid question. I, I, I said, oh, Tunisia was, was really, really hot. And he went, oh, God, no, it was really cold. I went, oh, well, here's my research out the window. Really good one there. Thanks very much. <laughs> anyway, never mind. Let's move to the next question. I'll probably get wrong. Um, yeah, because, of course, there was a typhoon or a, like, a, a, a sure. big windstorm went through, knocked over all the sets and everything. No, apparently it was quite cold. I thought it was hot, but no, apparently did not. Did you feel that Pierce Brosnan was very mechanical? Or? Yeah. Yeah, okay, sure. Yeah, I did with him. Uh, uh, but you, you've got to you've got to be respectful to the talent you're talking to because you don't know whether or not you might be talking that you might be interview number twelve. And I guarantee you, because I, I sat in, I actually uh, not emceed, I, I drove, ran uh, an interview package with um, Savage Garden when they released the album Affirmation up in Sydney, and I sat there, and they bounced from radio to radio to radio around the country doing these interviews, and by the time they got to like let's say interview number twelve. And for the twelfth time, somebody said, "Why did you call the album Affirmation?" And Daniel just rolled his eyes and looked at Darren, and Darren said, "No, you do it," because <laughs> they'd answered it twelve times. And you've got to be mindful of that. You may walk in to do an interview with somebody, and you're going to go, "So, what motivated you to take this role?" Wow, everyone's asked me that. <laughs> well, do you keep that in mind? Like, are yeah. you oh, yeah. okay? Sure, very much so. So, you don't ask those questions, or um, there's a couple of tricks. There's a couple of tricks when you do an interview. Um, which will get you out of jail as well, by the way. Uh, really will. You, you'll say something like, um, I would say to them, uh, you know, like you go, oh, wow. you know, Because you've got to be quick, because in the case of the ones we're talking about with actors, you're literally, you know, the stopwatch is running, you have 14 and a half minutes, go. Um, but you'll say, I'd, I'd say, I'd often I'd say something like, look, I've got a couple of bog standard, obvious, in-your-face questions. I'm really sorry. How many have you done already? Oh, it's seven. I'm really sorry. I'm probably going to ask you these for the eighth time. And the other thing is I've got a couple of really obvious questions I want to ask you. I'm not meaning to look like an idiot. I want you to give me the answer. I mean, uh, digress back to music. It was when I spoke to uh, 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 Ray Davies of the Kinks. I wanted him to tell me the story of Lola, the song Lola. And I said to him, I'm going to ask you an obvious question. I want you to say it. So I had it on tape, right? And it was the same thing with actors. That's a good get out of jail free card because if you ask a stupid question like you know I you know I heard it was really really cold over there and they go no it was boiling hot you know you just like oh yeah but my my experience with with doing interviews whomever they are especially in those scenarios where like you say with Pierce Brosnan we could have been interview number ten yeah. you know he's already had fifteen minutes with the Age with Fairfax fifteen minutes with ABC fifteen and then he has to do the TV ones he has to do the Channel Ten one where they're setting up cameras yeah. they book two rooms they're setting up cameras in that room while he's doing one in this one and then he walks across the hallway and does the other one and he's just doing this it's very tiring when you're asking asking the same question so you've got to give them a little bit of so leeway so you do your ABC questions and then do you ask the questions that you want to ask that you research and you feel I really want to know this or yeah okay sure yeah, yeah. Um, you get those out of the way and yeah it, you, you get a feel for it my experiences generally tended to be that if you can find something that they find interesting you will have them you will you will get their attention uh, it doesn't always work. 
Um, but if you could come up with something just a little different, and you've seen it, you would have seen it on um, Denton, you would have seen it maybe on Parkinson, or uh, maybe a Graham Norton or somewhere like that, where you'll, hear, you'll see the talent just go, how do you know that? <laughs> you know, I, I hear tell that when you were going to primary school, you used to actually carry a doodle book. Who told you that? What you? And you know, as soon as you hear them go, what? That's it. They're into the interview now because they know that the person they're talking to has done their research, isn't just going to ask dumb questions, yeah. you know, the ABCs. Sure. They've done their research. They're genuinely interested. And they've piqued their interest. By the way, you're doing interview number seven for this film. Oh, God, I'm going to go through the numbers. Yeah, I've really enjoyed being James Bond. I've loved it since I first saw Goldfinger. It was the first film I ever saw. Insert stock standard response here. Yeah, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, so if you can find something that gets their interest, that just... And and when you say about asking questions, I generally speaking with interviews, I went in with like three questions. If, if, If I had done the Henry Winkler interview, as I say, I didn't, George did the interview... If I had done the Henry Winkler interview, I would have gone in with no questions. I would have not bothered at all because the only two I wanted to ask were those two and the rest of it I knew I could ad-lib. I, 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 I've got it all in my head. Um, if you, my experience as, as a viewer uh, watching, uh, I don't like it when I see... Actually, one guy I do like watching do interviews is Michael Parkinson. He's probably more subtle than he gets credit for. Um, because he has got a pa- uh, like a clipboard there, you hardly ever see him look at it. And quite often he'll lean forwards and just ask a question, but you go, oh, he obviously listened to the response to the last, to, he listened to the last response and he's just asked an off-the-cuff question. They're always the best interviews, but you have to listen to what they're saying because they'll, they may well say something in an interview and, uh, and, and you'll turn around and go, what do you mean you're afraid of heights? How the hell did you do that sequence? Blah, 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 blah. Oh, I shut my eyes. You know, or whatever. You know, you're afraid of rats. What about that? Oh, they didn't tell me there were rats in it until I got on the set and then they turned up with a big bucket load of rats and you've got (laughs) 47 crew members and you can't back out now. That's it. That's, you know, you just... If you can find a question that piques their interest, then they get interested. And the moment they're interested, they relax and they become more friendly and it's a better interview. But did you ever have that? Oh, loads of times. Loads of cool. Yeah, loads of times. So it became more like a conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Um, And and when it becomes more of a conversation, because I've been interviewed... I mean, this is actually a little different, uh, but I have been interviewed a couple of times in the past. I was interviewed once by BBC London because I was working in the Middle East, and they wanted to know what it was like as a Westerner living in the Middle East. I remember feeling quite pressured because I was not in control. The other person's asking the questions. Normally, I ask the questions. That's easy. Wow. You've got to be. You've got to perform. This time, I had to be clever with my answers and so. On. And that was pressure. That was that was quite a lot of pressure. Um, so I sympathise with these guys that have to walk into a room and face eight, nine, ten journalists in two hours and and be fun and friendly and funny and hips. Go when they play the interview, it sounds great, even though there's going to be nine others that go to air somewhere else around the world. So sure. It's just keeping them interested and and uh, and making it interesting for them. Yeah. Robin Williams, if we're moving on, he was here to promote Bicentennial Man, and you were there for Robin Williams and Sam Neill. Yeah, that was one of those hand-in-glove things, as I was saying before, uh, saying earlier. Um, when I got to the show, and I may be putting tickets on myself, I don't, I, I don't know, but when I got to the show, we didn't have much of a reputation with publicists. And one of the things I was most proud of by the time I left is that I'd created... Um, uh, uh, a currency, if you like, with various publicists that they would ring us when they wanted to do things. There was a lot of bridge building to be done, by the way. Um, Sam Neill was one of those, and no, no offence to Sam. Uh, they rung up 
and said, you know, there's this movie coming out by Centennial Man, Sam Neill's in town, would you like to interview him? And it was one of those things, oh, when's the movie out? And I, I'll make this up, let's say it was out in January, and we were doing the interview in October. And, um, and I wasn't sure about it, and I went to my boss and said, what do you think? And he says, oh, Sam Neill, yeah, yeah, great, great, great. I have to say, he was a little dour. I'm not being rude. I'm not meaning to be rude or anything. He was just quite laid back and relaxed and everything, and it wasn't really spicy for breakfast radio. It would have been great, you know, on Artscape or something like that. There was nothing wrong with what he did or nothing like that. But it was, And I've done loads of interviews like that where you interview somebody and you want them to be a little bit more up or a bit more fun. And, and in this case, it wasn't, and it was, it was difficult to cut uh, to actually make it, you know, fun for breakfast radio because breakfast radio is a whole different beast to any other format. If it was lunchtime, if you were putting that on a lunchtime program, it would have been perfect. Sam was a bit, a bit quiet. He's a, he's a very studious man. He's a very intelligent man. Um, but we did the interview with Sam, and I would, I'm gonna, I have to guess now, but we weren't flavor of the month, if you like, at that point while I was there. I'm thinking that because we did the interview with Sam, the phone rang three weeks later and they said, do you want to talk to Robin Williams? And we said yes. Robin, <clears throat> you've got to remember that that was just getting towards the point where he started to fade away, as in like being an A-list box office person, you know, I mean, he hasn't done that much in the last, what, five or six, seven years. He was heading towards serious stuff. Yeah, yeah, he was drifting into insomnia and, and, and one-hour photo and stuff, but Bicentennial Man, you know, you can't really go wrong, he's playing a robot and, you know, it's going to be funny, it's in the future and stuff. Um, but, uh, but he did a lot of interviews around that time where he was just manic, where he was just like, would take over the set and, you know, do all sorts of things. And there was a little part of me that thought, you know, is this real? Is this, you know, is he always like this? I can't believe he is, but so on. What I can politely, what I can um, happily say is no, we got the slightly more serious side of Robin. Still fun, still fun, but uh, somewhat more subdued, like real person Robin. You know, not, you know, and the guy is amazing. You, I mean, um, uh, well, oh, yeah, the, the, the guy can just flick a switch and just light up a room. Um, I don't know if I can, can I tell you a personal anecdote um, <laughs> it was around that time there was a girl I really liked at the coffee shop and I was really quite sweet on her and I went in there to get a coffee one day and I said something about Bicentennial Man she goes oh I saw the trailer for that it looks really really good and I went well I've got tickets to the premiere next week if you want to come with me and she went oh really and I went yeah you can come with me if you like and I'm not it was red carpet we get to Fox Studios and, and red carpet, and we go walking in there. We go, and we're four rows from the front, little sweets, little package of sweets sitting on the chair, drink sitting there. Thank you very much. And they go, oh, that's quite nice. Then these, like, four characters in these orange bodysuits walk out like robots, right? They walk out in front of the screen. And who walks out behind them? Robin Williams, no who way. introduces the movie. So I'm thinking, this is not bad. <laughs> so we watch the movie. We then all walk out of Fox Studios, get put into a bus and taken to a nightclub on Oxford Street where there are these gold characters walking around with trays of champagne and other trays. They got these little um, terracotta plant pots, t little tiny terracotta plant pots that had risotto in them and little finger food and stuff. They're all walking around, free alcohol, free food. I'm thinking, hey, this is not bad. And then Robin comes out and does about 40 minutes stand up. And I'm thinking, this is not bad for a first date, really, by, by any, you know. My, my, where do you go from here? Right? Yeah, yeah. Where, do you, where do you go from here? I'll tell you where you go from here. You actually stare at her blankly when she says, oh, my God, my boyfriend's going to be so jealous. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm thinking, your boyfriend? <laughs> what did you tell him? Oh, that, you know that guy that works at the radio station? He's taken me to a movie premiere and stuff. Yeah, have a great time, honey. See you when you get home. 
yeah. <laughs> Thanks very much. No, Robin was great value. Yeah, Robin was great value. It was good. I gotta ask um, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Obviously, Lloyd loves pumping iron. <laughs> yeah. He was a huge army fan. Yeah. Did you see him in the physical sense? <laughs> you mean, was he in the room? Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. Um, Filling the room? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, that's, that's another personal story I suppose I can throw back to, and that is that's the one thing my sister's third child, second son, Cameron, remembers most, most impressively because he, he actually was, he was quite funny because when was it? It was 90 was it 99 yeah it was 99 so he would have been 11 and he came over to Sydney with my folks because they live in Adelaide and he came over with them and it was one of those things that you know I'm not this is true story I mean I was just it was my job it's what you do so I didn't even think twice about it my folks arrived on the Friday they said hi how are you going yeah good nice to be here and all that all the things you do and then they said oh what do you want to do tomorrow I said oh look I'm a bit busy at lunchtime I've got to go and interview Arnold Schwarzenegger and there's my 11 year old nephew just so I went what <laughs> so I said I'll make a couple of calls I'll see if you can come along so he tagged along under fear of death <laughs> don't speak don't say a word and go to the toilet before the interview starts <laughs> it wasn't an interview it was a press conference uh, and um, he actually met him as he was walking out and it's one of, the, one of those things you can become incredibly blasé about these things you know you, you, you meet, meet these people and you know, I, I mentioned earlier you, you don't want to look like a, an idiot saying can I have your autograph but you forget how much can I say this without sounding stupid civilians people in, in everyday life don't get to meet people like that mm-hmm. so he was about two feet away from Arnold Schwarzenegger and uh, he still talks about it now that uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger walked past me and he was huge and I'm like you're 11 dude you're taller now you know <laughs> but he was big he was a big guy and he was he was a really nice guy actually Robin Tunney was at that press conference as well because it was end of days and mm-hmm. she she was lovely she was really nice but Arnie was I would call Arnie the consummate professional he walked out he was at ease um, he um, he, he, I won't say he owned the crowd, but he just walked out and started talking to people as if, you know, he had the right to be there, which I know he did, but there was no nerves. There was no nothing. He was the guy. I'm here. I'm here to talk about the movie. And, um, yeah, he was, he was wow. just, he was good. I want to ask, have you guys seen End of Days? You've I've seen, seen End it? of Days, yeah. Oh, that, was, seen it. that was another one where I had to see it before the press conference. Mm-hmm. Do you want to come along the press conference? You have to go and see the movie. Sure. Um, and I must Underwhelming? Admit, um, Do you remember it fondly? Well, I, I personally, I, I just, I just, I just, all right, hang on. <laughs> I'm going to have to wrap him up. Well, just uh, for the visual, for those of you who are Hawk is just putting his bird under to wraps. Bed. To bed, <laughs> if you will. Yeah. But Sorry, yeah, Lloyd, what did you think of uh, End of Days? Oh, I remember not liking it at all. Yeah, I remember hating it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a big Arnie fan as well. I think um, that was the end of his action days I guess I think he came up with collateral damage not long after uh, well collateral damage he copped a copped a bad serve on that one because that came out pretty much around the time of the Twin Towers oh, right. that was made around that time so so that was actually put back because yeah. uh, um, sorry I'm, I'm telling you what I know not I, it was that was after the interview but um, yeah collateral damage was actually put back because of 9-11 um, but certainly end of days I thought Gabriel Byrne's performance was delicious yeah. I thought he was really good in that moment where he goes what that overrated press kit he calls the bible I've been down here doing my bit I thought that scene was pretty cool but all in all the whole I'm going to take on the devil with a gun was a bit silly but mm. uh, but yeah and and the whole premise that you know it was the 
what was it what was it now it was the turning of the century the end of the millennium or yeah. something and then there's all these people running around the office going it's not until next year it's not until 2001 <laughs> was there any of these screenings you went to did anyone leave midway or uh, no, not that I'm aware of no not that I'm aware there of. out of respect wouldn't you to uh, I had to during Mission Impossible 2 <laughs> <laughs> I mean really I really don't like that film yeah, I was about to say some of the films you'd be like oh this is terrible oh there, well there was also Gone in 60 Seconds right. I remember there was a there was a girl I, I wasn't seeing her like romantically we were we were just buddies really and, and I'd ring her up and go hey I've got tickets for Gladiator hey I've got tickets for this and I, I might have even been Gladiator I'm not sure but we rocked up to this theatreette um, oh can I just digress you asked me about how you go and see these screenings and I said about the one at um, on Clarence Street which is um, on the sixth floor it looked like Jurassic Park theatreette thing the the one at the Fox Studios the the studios at, at Fox I don't know if they've still got them like this but um, I remember going to see a screening of Mulan which is the Disney animated film this was one of the first ones I ever went to see when I got to Sydney so you know we made oh do you want to come and see a special screening of the film yeah sure so we rock up to this theaterette down near Ultimo would have been about 11 in the morning we walk in there's the publicist I've never actually met her I've spoken to her on the phone let's say her name was Jane hi Jane talk blah 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 she goes ah oh, great thanks for coming along can I get you something white wine red wine beer I'm like uh red wine would be nice <laughs> puts me a glass of red wine we go into this theaterette with recliner armchairs oh this is quite good and halfway through the movie she walks over and goes would you like a and I'm like, oh, yeah, sure, thanks. Thinking, wow, this is pretty cushy. <laughs> I'm getting paid to watch movies and fed wine. Okay, good. Do you think they wine and dine them to like the film? Uh, no, it was just that was just part of the, the charter, really, the courtesy thing. But, yeah, I remember ringing Georgie one time when you uh, about these movies you go and see and the good and the bad ones. I remember going to see Gone in 60 Seconds. And my opinion of the film was gone in 60 seconds <laughs> we walked in I think my memory is we were going to go and see something else and we got the dates wrong but they were already going to screen this gone in 60 seconds so they went yeah come in watch it so we went in sat there watched it and we I don't know if anyone that's listening to this is in Sydney or is familiar with them Arthur's Pizza in um, on Oxford Street we used to go there a lot after movies and uh, and we literally watched gone in 60 seconds walked out of the theatreette and it was six o'clock at night or whatever. I said, "So you want to do pizza?" And she went, "Sure." So we just walked up to, to, uh, to Arthur's Pizza. I went in the bottle shop, got a bottle of red. She ordered the pizza. Nothing was said about the movie. Not one word. It's just like, oh well. <laughs> Un unremarkable then, I guess. Very much so. Yeah, this 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 Corvette or Mustang or whatever can go as fast as a police car in reverse. <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> we'll move on. Yeah. You mentioned the Arnold Schwarzenegger situation was a press conference. Yeah. Tell us about press conferences in general. Uh, okay, well, there's, there's, there's a bunch of things. I mean, for starters, I never, ever took a microphone to a press conference, just so you know. Mm -hmm. uh, they, they have, and again, I haven't done one for a few years. They certainly had at the time, they had an audio pickup rack in the, in the room. So in some cases, they would have just individual microphones you've seen them like in in japan where james cameron and, and various people like there's a row of five people that come out panel and, yeah panel type thing maybe at Cannes film festival or something yeah they'll all be mic'd up and then there's an audio rack at the back of the room where you plug your recorder into uh and you just pick it up from there and somebody will be walking around with a cordless microphone and you'll and they'll they'll normally they've got two they'll have at least two and they will walk around and they will you'll have your hand up and they'll come over and they'll hand you the microphone while the other person is either asking the question or the 
the respondent is 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 giving their answer and then they'll throw to you where you ask your question and hopefully don't look like an idiot because you've asked a dumb question mm. and then you hand the microphone back to the lady who goes to um to uh to somebody else um you said it was like class like you know entering class and everyone's afraid to ask questions over time did you get used to that or like was it always that feeling coming into press conference? Was it always that feeling it was always, a- always that feeling but you got better at it you you know like more confidence i suppose uh you'd have to ask someone like angela bishop Ange used to do our entertainment reports and i remember going to uh well it was a music one but it was when cold chisel reformed and they had an album they were going to tour i think i seem to recall i can't remember but it was just at a pub and it was the same thing there were all these rock journalists and myriad of different people there and it was again it was like being in school you class you didn't want to put your hand up in case you asked a stupid question and you asked like four or five questions because she was totally Leaves in that situation. She'd been at so many, um, and and I I do recall I asked a couple of questions, uh, but I I'd tell you a funny story in regards to that. But again, it's 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 a music based one. I remember a radio announcer in Adelaide, John Pemberton, telling a story about how he went to he was flown to Melbourne for a press conference with Mick Jagger. Mick was touring as a solo artist. Mm. And Pemberton, John, John had been in the industry for ages, and he got to Melbourne and, and got to the hotel, and the publicist for Mick Jagger said, oh, good, you're here. Please tell me you're going to ask questions. And he went, well, yeah, I figured I'd ask Mick Jagger a couple of questions. Why is that? And he goes, because we did the press conference in Sydney, and everyone was just, like, drooling. <laughs> they were all in awe of Mick Jagger. Oh, my God, it's Mick Jagger. I don't want to ask him a question. My God, it's a rock legend. It's kind of a bit like that at a press conference, and it's the same thing with actors. It's very difficult. Uh, it's much easier if you have a one-on-one because you can ask individual questions. At a press conference, you, you can't ask one question, and that's it. You know, um, what's a feeling like with all the other? Like, is it a competitive feeling? Like, oh, I really want this question asked, and if they ask it, you can't use theirs, or well, how's that? Oh, work? well, there is an aspect of that that you know you you're geared up and you're trying to conjure up a bit of Dutch courage to stick your hand up and ask a dumb question, and just as you stick your hand, oh, this happened to me. <laughs> this might have been at the Mel Gibson press conference. I can't remember. It was one of them where uh, you know I figured out what I was going to ask, and I put my hand up. And the woman's walked over and handed me the microphone, and the other guy asked the question I was going to ask. Oh, I hate that. <laughs> And I'm like, I was going to ask that. And then it comes to you and you're like... I I, I think I came up with something, but... uh, but You'd have to, wouldn't you? Yeah, you have to, really. Um, uh, Yeah. Um, What did I ask Mel? Uh, Oh, the same thing. What was it like to win an Oscar? Hmm. Uh, And... um, uh, and he, Braveheart, wasn't it? Yeah, but the, the, the one of those really that one of those great trivia night questions. What is it that Robert Redford, um, David Attenborough, uh, Richard Attenborough, um, Mel Gibson, and Kevin Costner all have in common? You know, they're all accomplished actors who won Academy Awards as directors. Mm. You know, it's odd. You know that they they, oh, they don't mind, but uh, <laughs> but you know, but it was funny his response. This is way. This is ninety. This was 2000, the interview in 2000, we did that. Uh, his response was funny about what was it like winning the Oscar and where do you keep it? And the bastard didn't say where he kept it, so I didn't get that grab. But he said it was, it was, it was uh, nice to win and, and it was, he, was, he was humbled and stuff, but he felt more so for, um, and now I can't remember his name, his business partner, Bruce, look it up, yeah. <laughs> the other guy behind Icon Productions. Uh, he was more grateful for him because he's the silent partner in the background. He doesn't get any of the accolades. He doesn't get nice tables in restaurants unless people actually know who he is, whereas Mel walks in, my God, clear the room, Mel's here. Well, then. <laughs> yeah, I was about to say, <laughs> I don't know if the same treatment still applies. No, no. But no. still, where do you think Mel Gibson keeps his Oscar? I know where he'd like to put it. <laughs> <laughs> 
And we'll move on. <laughs> Let's talk about Jack Nicholson. Obviously, huge. Mm-hmm. Uh, as good well, as it gets, wasn't uh, it? Yeah, it was as good as it gets. And again, that was that was where we asked the question about Batman, and he referred to Batman as his pension fund. Mm. Uh, I don't know. For those of you who don't know, he was put on a on a, on a percentage of gross uh, for that film, and it's it's rumored that he got between sixty and seventy million for that movie. Hence, why he called it his pension fund. Mm. Um, he was. How do I put this? One of one of the most r- relaxed, at ease with himself individuals of this ca- actors and so on of all the people that I met and or interviewed, he was one of the most relaxed and self confident in his own abilities without being smug. Mm. He was just Jack, and and I get it now. You know, you, you when people go, oh, it's Jack. You know, it's just Jack, and you go, yeah. It's just Jack. You meet him, and he's very relaxed, very aware of who he is and what he does, mm. but not. And and I got to tell you, Russell Crowe was the same. I was most impressed with him. That, uh, but yeah, going back to Jack. Uh, yeah, he was promoting as good as it gets. Uh, he he won the Oscar. Did he win the Oscar for that? That was his third, wasn't it? Yeah, he did. I believe so. Yeah, he did. Yeah, because he he got. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, I think he was just in a good place, and he was happy to talk. And that was one of the more relaxed ones. I think we had like half an hour with him. You know, I think the Oscars miss Jack Nicholson. You know, he always used to sit at the front. Yeah, he always just sit at the front with the shades on. Mm. Yeah, he was sadly lacking this year. He's been missing for about a decade. Right. Which I think I keep looking for him at the front there. <laughs> He's never there. Last time I remember him being there was um, he and Morgan Freeman were doing the bucket list because he had the shaved head. Right. So it must have been 2006 or something mm-hmm. like that, which six years well, yeah, you know, yeah, but I, I think when you talk about Oscars, uh, for the record, I've never been. You know, uh, I know a couple. I've, a couple of my contemporaries did uh, the ones that are working at Today FM uh, at that time. But um, I don't really. Say, I, I've been to a couple of TV award nights. If the Oscars are anything like that, I wouldn't want to go because they're all structured for television. Mm. So you know, try and imagine when you're watching the Oscars or any awards night for that matter, where they go, ah, oh, the Oscar goes to blah, 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 and the person gets up and names a whole bunch of people, and then they have the orchestra play as he walks off the stage, and then there's just like a silence in the room for three minutes, three and a half minutes before, da, 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 oh, we're back, right, okay. <laughs> and, you know, if you're, if you're nominated for Best Actor, you know that... I'll turn that off. You are right? If you're nominated for Best Actor... Sorry, that was the phone, people. Free plug for <laughs> HTC phones. Um... <laughs> Um, if you're nominated for Best Actor, the, cer- the ceremony itself is you're sitting in the theatre for like three and a half hours. You can't drink. Well, Jack might, you know, but you really don't want to get up there and go, oh, I really want to thank my mum. <laughs> so, you know, you've got to be mindful of that and you can't really do much. And the other thing is there's always that fear that they're going to go, the other guy. And you've got to go, yeah, now I can go and get drunk. You've got to, you've got to do the best acting yeah, performance yeah. of your life looking happy yeah. for them and the other thing if you think of what you're saying about Jack Nicholson I, I'm just giving my, my opinion the other thing is and Jack's got to be well, he was doing stuff in 58 with, with Coleman wasn't he so I'm, I'm going I'm to go out and limb here and say he's at least 70 hmm. does he really want to go out and have the cameras on him all the time when he could sit at home and watch it on TV <laughs> You know, if I go to the Oscars, they'll put me at the front. I've got to wear the shades. I've got to look like I'm happy to be there. It's boring. <laughs> I'd rather, yeah, you know. Well, I don't know. I miss um, him, I guess. I've I got, I got to ask the most beautiful woman on, on earth, Angelina Jolie. Nope. 
No. 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 No way. It now begins a whole different debate. I nope. think she's studying. Yeah, good for you. <laughs> good for you. You went in the room with her. Uh, this was during her Morticia Adams phase. Uh, we did the interview with uh, with uh, with Angelina. Oh, she was nice enough. She, was, she wasn't rude or anything like that. No. She, again, it was it was like I said with Ashley Judd. Um, uh, Angelina Jolie had just done. Um, Bone Collector. No, Bone Collector. Uh, She may have done Girl Interrupted. It was around that time. But my recollection of that period was uh, she got the Oscar for Girl Interrupted, but she got the attention for the Bone Collector Mm. because that was the Philip Noyce film that that really put her on the map. And I remember going to the special screening of it before we did the interview. Oh, well, I remember approaching George. He was the breakfast announcer at the time. And I said, oh, we've been... the, the, The... whoever produced it let's say it was it was Columbia have approached us about um, doing an interview with Angelina Jolie and he went oh John Hurt's daughter no John Voight's daughter John Voight's yeah and I'm like I'm like okay fine um, <laughs> it's a film by Philip Noyce so it's going to be pretty good I think you know and like you know and, and this was this is early in the piece so I didn't really want to say no as a producer this is what I was alluding to before when they when, when publicists come to you and, and offer you things my my um what do i put my my re- rationale was say yes to what they offer and in some ways put an interview to air that you wouldn't necessarily leap at the chance to do if you were knocking they were knocking down your door you know but they weren't knocking down our door so i said dude you know this is a philip nice film it looks like it's going to be a reasonably popular movie uh mainstream blah 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 oh yeah so we went and did the interview and by the way that led to us doing an interview with philip nice which was lovely that was really nice too mm. um in fact he told a funny story about um and bear in mind this is 1999 uh he told a funny story about how that whole uh, you've seen bone collector and you've seen yeah. Bone Collector, and it's not going to spoil it for anybody who hasn't, because it's the very beginning. The very beginning of the scene where the couple get out of the airport and they get in the taxi and they start driving, and it's going the wrong way, and he tries to get out, can't. That whole thing was done on the set on blue screen, right. and the, all the backdrops were added using CGI and/or it wasn't rear projection; it was blue screen. And then we'll go and film, and they had to film from a cab at like six thirty in the evening to get the lighting right. Right, lights right, go. And they filmed it all, and then all the backdrops were added later. Um, which the, the back in 99 that was like wow and he goes yeah but we we did like eight takes of that scene we couldn't have done that if we were doing it in the cab we would have had one run through and then the light would have gone so that was the first time I was really aware obviously Star Wars was out by then the Phantom Menace or was about to come out but that was the first time I was really aware of how they could manipulate film to that degree but yeah Angelina Jolie uh, getting back to that um, we went into interviewer um, I'd seen the movie thought she was gorgeous and very down to earth uh, wearing t- normal clothes. She was wearing police officer clothes or jeans and mm. T-shirt and that. Mm. She rocks into the hotel room wearing uh, knee-high boots. I think they were brown, but it doesn't matter. Knee-high boots. Uh, it was either a cream skirt and a white blouse or a white skirt and a cream blouse. Anybody knows anything about fashion says you don't put white and cream together. It just looked odd. <laughs> uh, and this dark top. And when she had this very pallid skin, very pallid skin, uh, that um, made her look like she really needed a good vitamin shot. Mm. Really? And this is, you've got to bear in mind, this is way before Tomb Raider and all the, the, the myth of Angelina Jolie. This is the first time we'd met her. I'd seen her in the movie, and I was just a little bit disappointed because she looked so, so good in the movie, and she was just a little Morticia Adams in real life. And, uh, and you know, years later when I said, oh, yeah, we interviewed you. Oh, my God, you met her. I'm like, yeah. Mm. 
she, she was nice enough, but she wasn't what you see on the screen. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I, I hope I hope I'm not sounding like a bastard when I say that. I really don't. But no, she was underwhelming as a as a you know one of the most beautiful women in the world. Well, not really. <laughs> wow. You know. Um, I mean, you'd you'd have to admit though that she looks better now than 1999. Well, I don't know because she looked good in 1999 on the screen. Okay. So I don't know. I did see her in. Um, well, I saw her at the Oscars, and she looked like she needed a good meal. Mm, <laughs> she did look a little bit uh, uh, emaciated, uh, but it's I hate. But lady. hey, yeah. hey, listen, <laughs> I worked in radio. I've got a face for radio, so I shouldn't be being judgmental about people <laughs> who look that good. <laughs> Fair enough. I want to talk about another big, intimidating individual. And when I saw the Green Mile, <laughs> Michael Clark Duncan looks ridiculously big and uh, massive, massive dude. Barely fits in his jail cell. I'm wondering. How much of that was realistic, and whether he's a giant in real life? Nope. Nope. Uh, big guy. Wow. Big guy. Yeah. Uh, he's a big guy. No question about that. But yeah, what you see in the Green Mile is clever angles. Um, mm. Oh, undersized clothing. He's a big man, but I'd say he. Uh, I'd say he might be six foot. Okay. I'm kidding. I think I, I can't. I can't. It's it's ten years ago, but I I do remember what I do remember is wow they made you look good in the film yeah. compared to what you are. He's a big guy, but they made him look huge in the movie, mm. uh, and he is a gentle giant. He really is. He was so. I don't know if he was just overwhelmed by the attention and loving it in a positive way. You know, he was just like because I'll tell you how he got the job on the Green Mile was. Uh, um, I'm trying to think. Was it was it Frank Darabont directed that? I think it was. I'm not sure. Not sure, yeah, I think so. Yeah, it was because he did Shawshank as well. Um, I um, oh maybe he did the Majestic as well. I'm getting I can't I'm getting I'm getting stretched now as to who it was, but uh, Michael Clark Duncan was working on Armageddon with Bruce Willis, and it was Bruce Willis who approached, and I think it was Frank Darabont, and said, "There's a bloke here you should look at. He's good." And it was through Bruce Willis that he they, they sent a couple of rushes over and they looked and went, wow, this guy could could be the real deal. And he went over there. Cool. And he I, he struck me when we spoke to him is he he just he just thought he's the luckiest guy in the world. And I think when he went to the Oscars because he was nominated for uh, best supporting actor, he took his mother. You know, I mean that's how down to earth he was. He was he was a lovely man. Uh, and, and like I say, he was just almost like you know, wow, I, like Henry Winkler, what I said before. He was just like, oh, how I'm so lucky to be here. You know, my, I've, I've been working with Bruce Willis and, and, and Steve Buscemi, and then I walk in and start working with Tom Hanks, and then they go, hey, let's fly you to Australia. <laughs> and he's like, does it get any better than this, really? I'm kidding. Mm. So, yeah, he was lovely. He was really nice. But as I say, he wasn't as big as he looks in the movie. He's a big guy, but not that big. Hmm. I'm curious, when you go and sit down in a room with these people, obviously sometimes you're there to interview, sometimes you're there to produce the mm. interviews. How many people... What is the biggest entourage one of these stars will have with them? Because they would have their own publicist, stylist, etc. What are we seeing when we come into this room? To ever trash the makeup room? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I didn't go in the makeup room. Uh, uh, two. The most is two. Yeah, pretty much. What you see in Notting Hill, for those of you who haven't seen it, watch Notting Hill. It's about forty minutes, no, about forty-five minutes into the film when he does the interview pieces. What you see is what you get. Star. Uh, artist in the room talent in the room you walk in there to do the interview and you know the guy that kept walking in and out in that particular scene if you remember him where, where Hugh Grant had to ask embarrassing questions because he had no idea because the guy was there um, yeah the From horse and hound that's the one uh, yeah it's like that you you know I'd be I'd be sitting there whether I was doing the interview or, or I'd be there with, with say George or, or David who was doing the interview um, and um, you'd have a publicist uh, so like just walking backwards and forwards 
not pacing like irritated, but walking backwards and forwards. And what she would do is uh, she would like wave her hand at the like 13 and a half minute mark. Mm. It's kind of like wrap it up now. And um, because oh, they're on a, <laughs> the one you don't have a choice situation. Yeah. You don't have a choice. You they're do not a, have a choice. As you say, they're on a time. They well, I, did I mention it um, on mic or off? I don't know. But my recollection is that Arnold Schwarzenegger came to Australia to promote End of Days. He was an executive producer for the film, Kaching, uh, and he was in the country for about seven hours. Uh, flew in, was taken to the press conference, went and did some one-on-ones, say, with Margaret and David and the bigger radio stations, the one getting the, the, the big numbers. We weren't getting bigger numbers. We were trying. Um, on the harbour. I think there were four or five. I think he did one with Fairfax, one with Today FM, and one with the ABC, and then went to the airport and flew to New Zealand. Hmm. Wow, so it's go, go, go. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah, um, uh, who was who was it? Uh, Matt Damon when he did Born. This is after my time, but I know when he did Born, he flew in, did the Sydney junket on the uh, oh, did Sydney on the Sunday and did Melbourne on the Monday. And the reason for doing Melbourne on the Monday was because that's when Rove was filmed and he could go on Rove or Denton. I'm not sure which, but it was definitely they actually factored in his itinerary to go on Rove live. And that is one of the things that you find in this country now that's lacking, I suppose. We don't really have that vehicle whereby if a Tom Hanks or a... Or a, um, or a um, Brad Pitt. Yeah, Brad Pitt or someone was going to come over to promote it, where do they get promoted? You know, there's, there's such a fracture now in the media. We don't have... And I'm old enough to go back to the Don Lane show or the Mike Walsh show or so on or when Ray Martin was doing Midday. I'm, you know, Robin Williams went on Midday several times. We don't really have those vehicles anymore. Uh, Do you mean um, there's not one massive media for them just to go to? Like, it's just so fragmented now? Well, it's it's partly fragmented, but the other thing that's sad in Australian media is we don't have a vehicle like Rove Live or Tonight Live with Steve Vizard, where if if you're publicising a movie and you know that you can get an audience... I wasn't a fan of Rove Live. I'm not saying it was a bad show. It just didn't really appeal to me. But, you know, when, when that show was on... And you're a publicist and you can get Adam Sandler or uh, Drew Barrymore or someone. Yeah, it's worth them flying 14 hours to go on that show because it gets a million viewers. I see. You see? see. Whereas you go, well, if we fly them here now, what are they going to go? They're going to go on Sunrise? They tend to, yeah. There's um, a lot of people appearing on morning television as well as The Project and stuff like that. Yeah, The Project is the one that's going to get you now. And that's, Mm. you know... It's also produced by uh, Rove, so... Yeah. The Project is the one that's going to nail you more than anything else where you're going to get someone come down and go on a show like that. Um, But, you know, if you turn around to to an A-lister and you say, do you want to come down to Australia to promote a film and you'll be on the morning show with David and Sonia or you'll be on with Larry and... and, and, um, and uh, Kylie, Kylie. Um, you know, I don't know if they have much of a choice because a lot of the time these things are written into their contract. It's conditional that they have to do X number of publicities uh, within the, the promotion of the film. Whether or not that includes flying internationally, I know they do a lot of junkets in London, but then again, having been to London, why wouldn't you take a free flight to London? And a buddy of mine that was working in New Zealand, in, in, in Dublin, their publicity journalist was regularly flown to London to interview people, and we're talking that major A-list stars on a regular basis because they're all it's, you know, it's a five-hour flight from New York. I see what you mean. We don't have a David Letterman or a Jay Leno. No, like we don't have anything like that. Sure. You know, so it's yeah. it's it's a struggle to convince people to travel all this way to be on TV at ten o'clock in the morning. I never thought of that. Yeah, hmm. um, Harry Connick Jr. Yeah, I, I, I mentioned when you, when, you, when you asked me about the people that I'd either interviewed or helped interview or worked with or so on. Yeah, we, we did mention Independence Day uh, with him because he was out just touring, doing musical stuff. He was, that, was, that was an odd interview, that was, uh, purely because we were told, go to like the Intercontinental 
uh, room 401 be there at 4 o'clock. So we get to 401 and knock on the door expecting the publicist to answer the door. Harry opens the door. Okay, come on in, yeah. And, um, yeah, he, he just said he enjoyed making movies because he didn't take them seriously. Because not the only part that he ever had to take seriously was Copycat. All the others, he was the larrikin guy. That was the Sigourney Weaver film? Yeah, that Copycat. Great yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, he was very good in that. Maybe I'm doing him a disservice because it was a while ago since we did the interview. But, yeah, he said something along the lines of he just liked to have fun. And more often than not, those roles were the ones that were being offered to him. Uh, he was in Memphis Belle as well, but he was not the main star. So so he was comfortable on stage. He was comfortable in front of a crowd. He had no problem with that. So walking up... That, that, oh, that, yes, that was what he said. He said, I've been performing since I was 10 as a, as a musician. So I really didn't feel a whole lot of pressure walking onto a soundstage in front of... 22 people <laughs> I see, I've yeah. played in front of 10,000 wow. and I've got to remember the words and if I don't remember the words when I'm singing I'm screwed <laughs> when I don't remember the words on a film set they go stop cut Take two. <laughs> so he says, I didn't really feel that feel that, that much. You That's know, what I, a lot of stage actors say against uh, you know film grown actors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think I think he was one, and I, I never I never had the opportunity. I would have liked to have met Wilfred Brimley, who was in um, Absence of Malice. He was brilliant at the end of Absence of Malice. And he was in the Cocoon films as well. He was, and all these actors that you find out about. Lee Marvin was another one, and and these actors that literally walk off the street where they've been in the army, the marines, they've been in war or something, or they do something else. Yeah. And they don't take what they do too seriously. Often, make it look so normal. Yeah, it works in their favour. Because they're it? not really paying that much attention. I'll just go in and do the lines, you know, uh, and just be silly. Uh, but he, he, he was really nice, and he, yeah, he said he was just happy to do acting because it was... Uh, I, can't, I can't remember the words, but it was like it was a it was a holiday for him. You know, it was like I do music as a living. That's what I do. Uh, wow, um, uh, you know, they want me to go and appear with Will Smith in this blockbuster Hollywood movie. Yeah, I gotta ask about it. So this is Independence Day. Yeah, um, it was. Yeah. I grew up in the nineties. I remember there not being as much blockbusters as there is today. You know, like mm. I can remember like ten off the top of my head throughout the whole decade. Um, how was the press kit? Was it massive? Like, did they? Oh no, no, I, I can't help you with that one because I was interviewing Harry because of his tour and oh, he brought it up. Yeah. Sure. The Independence Day was about three years earlier. Oh, okay, yeah. But yeah, no, with, I got the press kit for X-Men 2. That was pretty full on. Okay, uh, yeah. As in, uh, you know, a slick colour booklet and everything. And yeah, I don't know if you remember this, but when you, 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 you might see them with travel brochures or something, instead of opening it up and seeing a full glossy shot of the harbour, there'll be like a little small photo within the page that's glossy, <laughs> but the rest of the page isn't. Yeah. And it looks like they've, you know, mapped. Yeah, that was X-Men 2. Right. They had, yeah, there was a, there was a DVD of footage you could use there was a CD of audio clips you could use including interviews with uh, with uh, Patrick Stewart and uh, I can't remember a couple of others and uh, and also this booklet that was probably about 60 or 70 pages thick with biogs and every actor and story of the X-Men and so on that was that was that was pretty full oh, on cool um, yeah <laughs> but yeah sorry I uh, yeah Harry Connick no that wasn't uh that wasn't the deal we were talking because of his tour and yeah. the, uh, the, the, the independence thing came up and sure, I, can't, yeah. I can't remember how he worded it it was almost like you know I'm having a break from my regular job mm. you know and, and uh, you, know, you know like I say you know when, when some mainstream director comes along and says wow we're making this 150 million dollar film with Will Smith do you want to be in it and he's gone yeah why not I've got a couple of months spare and you're going to pay me as well okay <laughs> 
It's always very interesting when uh, musicians become actors or actors become musicians, I think. Mm. Yeah, we might have to dedicate a podcast to that one time, Lloyd. Well, there was a um, the famous uh, Parkinson had, there was an episode of Parkinson where he had Tom Hanks and David Bowie on the same show. Mm-hmm. So we're talking A-list in both fields, right? Uh, but uh, they asked Bowie about acting, something about acting, and, and I can't remember the actual word, but it was Tom Hanks, who's very down-to-earth every day. I've never met him, but he comes across being very down-to-earth, and he goes, oh, it's always the way with, with musicians, because he says, actors, all actors want to be musicians. We're all jealous of musicians. And then, you know, what comes along? But, you know, some musician who can act, and it's like, you go to dinner parties in, in Hollywood, and there's a clique over there that can all play instruments and sing, and we hate them. <laughs> but they're all standing over there going, they're in movies, we hate them. <laughs> and it seems to be that yin-yang thing going on. You're a really successful musician. Yeah, but I want to I be an actor. You're a really successful actor. Yeah, but I want to direct. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a brilliant segue to our next uh, interview person. Um, Russell Crowe. He can sing, he can act, 30-odd foot of grunt. He mm-hmm. has an Oscar. Punch out as well. <laughs> Your impressions of him? Impressive. I was impressed by Russell Crowe. I, I, he, he, we, we had, well, Angela Bishop had interviewed him when he was nominated for Gladiator, but that was over the phone. Mm-hmm. And then subsequently, when he came out to do the PR for Gladiator, we got the chance to, to, to interview him. And I didn't really know what to expect. And I want to go on record in case he actually ever hears this or someone else who knows him tells him this. He probably will. You just don't know. Hi, Russ. Um, I remember having a, a disagreement with Ange Bishop. Uh, at the at the at the radio station, saying he hasn't quite clicked yet. This was before Gladiator, and she goes, "Oh, what about Gladiator?" And I said, "Well, he hasn't come out yet." But he'd had what was it, Virtuosity? The big one out? was uh, The Insider. Oh, that hadn't come out yet. Oh, okay, it was sure. before The Insider, but he was making Gladiator. Insider was about to come out, yep. and I said he hasn't had his tentpole film yet. You know what I mean? He hadn't had that big wow A list person. You know, oh, I mean, oh, I didn't mind Mission Impossible. You know, with Tom Tom Cruise, it was uh, uh, Top Gun and so on. Yep. He hadn't had that big. T- and I had. She goes, "Oh, well, he's working on Gladiator." I said, "Well, we'll see what happens." And what did I know? You know. <laughs> then when I met him, uh, purely professionally at this interview, he just struck me as um, being completely professional completely aware of his place uh, I won't say he knew how to play the game he was comfortable comfortable in his own skin and and that impressed me and I think part of that is because I'd met a lot of Australian musicians some Australian actors and then Americans and, and Brits as well along the way that what became maybe it was when I met Russell Crowe that it sort of highlighted it for me but what became obvious for a, for a time there was um, if you're Australian and you're successful, you better be humble. You can be loud if you're American because we expect them to be like that. But if you're Australian, don't be brash. And he was a guy, he wasn't being brash, but he was a guy that knew he was good. Knew he was good at what he did and did it well. And I tip my hat to him. He's good at what he does and he was a nice guy. I suppose he hadn't peaked in America, but he had had romper stomper. In Australia? And yeah, yeah, he certainly hadn't picked in America at that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, when we did the interview for Gladiator, he had already, Insider had already come out, and he'd been nominated for an Oscar. Right. So he was already creating a buzz. Mm. Um, I, I just think, I mean, sorry, I digress slightly, but I think it's quite funny that, you know, we, we talk about Romper Stomper. Uh, the reason why he got cast in Gladiator was because Ridley Scott saw Romper Stomper. And the same thing with Eric Banner. He cast uh, Eric Banner in uh, Black Hawk Down because he saw him in Chopper. It's just interesting that directors will watch the most obscure films. Obscure. obscure you wouldn't expect. Yeah, you wouldn't expect Ridley Scott, you know, over in England or in America, wherever he was working at the time, to come across this Aussie movie that wasn't getting a lot of buzz overseas. 
and watching it and sitting there. Well, and then again, but that was like Spielberg, wasn't it? With um, the mayor from Jaws. I can't remember the guy's name. You know, the mayor in Jaws. Yeah. yeah you know, I want to get these, you know. Um, he, he saw him in The Hustler. And Spielberg said, you know, when I was making Jaws, I always wanted to get him. I always, Mary, Mary, what's his name? He's Mary Hamilton. Always wanted to get Mary Hamilton for a film because I saw him in The Hustler. I thought he was great. So it's just funny, you know, that, that Russell got recognised through Romper Stomper by an English director. I'm pretty sure Vin Diesel was also um, recognised for a short film or something he did by Spielberg as well. Mm, possibly, yeah. Yeah, yeah. some yeah. sort of thing. I'm going to ask Chris O'Donnell. Obviously now making, making waves now in NCIS. Oh, don't, 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 don't be unkind about Robin. You know, don't <laughs> pick on him. Those nipples weren't his. <laughs> he told us that. Was it the movie with the bat card, I think it was? Or Get Drive Through? Yeah, it was that same. Oh, horrible movie. Poor guy. <laughs> Get to the point. What are you trying to say here, Lloyd? Did you, did you, did you like it or not? Oh, no. <laughs> Batman didn't recover for a long time. <laughs> uh, we, well, actually, you're being unkind because that was Batman Forever and it was the, the fourth one was Batman and Robin. So oh, he was in both right. of them, though. He was in both yeah, of them. I get the but they're both, both pretty terrible. Yeah, they <laughs> both get, you get mixed up with both of them. Uh, yeah, no, we, well, just for the record, just so you know, we interviewed him because of Vertical Limit. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Which... Um, which we went and saw yeah a bit like that <laughs> went and saw it and I have to say didn't mind it the first time around a bit like Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom I remember seeing that and going wow that was great and then saw it again and went really there's no plot it's just stunts it's amazing with Vertical Limit I found like when you saw that movie it's just like wow he's not a starring actor mm. like it's crazy <laughs> you, it's a big budget movie you know that's you an know. odd film because there is no star in that film really <laughs> I, I don't think uh, you've got a bunch of names uh, was Famke Jansen in it or was uh, it was I'm going to get wrong here no it was the other girl that was in Goldfi- Goldeneye it was the other Bond girl that was in Goldeneye she was in it looking completely unattractive compared to her character in Goldeneye I remember that but yeah Vertical Limit there was uh, there was no real star in it the star was the set pieces I mean uh, Martin Campbell is, a, is an excellent director um, but yeah we, we interviewed him and uh, uh, you know it was just interesting uh, what, what was he said now uh, I just said, you know, have you have you ever adjusted to seeing yourself that big on the screen? And he went, yeah, I'm kind of used to it because he said, you know, I have to go to these screenings, you know, to publicise it and everything. He goes, my mother hasn't got used to it yet. She still goes, oh, my God, I saw you in that new movie. It's so good. Um, and it, that was funny because it was, again, you, you, know, uh, you know, you're talking to somebody um, about a, a film they've done <clears throat> and they're hooking it back to their mum. And it reminds you that these are all just people, yeah. you know. Humanizes uh, them. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it, it, you know, if you if you go back to when we were talking before about Anthony Daniels, uh, this is a guy that turned up in Tunisia to wear a silly golden outfit, to walk around with a rubbish bin, uh, in the middle of the desert, with this with Alec Guinness wearing you know monk robes, and a kid carrying this what looked like a torch, and you know went through the motions. And by the way, didn't even know if his voice was going to be on screen that was decided afterwards and then it just becomes this massive phenomenon and then people are going oh my god you're in Star Wars and he went yeah I was in the desert where it was sunny and bright and I had a crew of 40 nearby and it was you know blah 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 mm. it's a totally different experience um, I can't imagine what it was like working on the, the prequels because you were in a green room yeah, all yeah. the time as far as vertical limits concerned yeah I don't know how much of that was shot in I hate this cold weather kind of climate I don't know um, we just, I think, we asked him something along those lines. You know, do you like the colder weather? He goes, oh, I was fine with it. You know, he says we had trailers there, and it was, it was, you know. But he says it was just, you know, if you're doing a fifth or sixth take, you know, by the time you're, you've been out there for an hour, an hour and a half, you're starting to get a bit, you know, my toes are going numb. 
B goes, you knew what you were doing when you signed up for it. Wow, yeah. it's on a mountain and snow. It's going to be cold, is it? <laughs> Who knew? Mm. Mm. Yeah, good. <laughs> I was just going to say, uh, maybe you could elaborate a little bit on the Batman um, element of it. You asked him about the nipples. On oh, the- yeah, well, we just joked about Batman. That was the comment that he made. We mm. just made a joke about, you know, do you think there'll be another Batman? I, I think at that stage, um, you know, it was all in it being cooled off. You know, what was it like working on Batman? Was it physically taxing? Yes, it was. You know, blah, blah, blah. And then he just turned around and goes, oh, by the way, just so you know, Batman and Robin, they weren't my nipples. And that stayed in the interview. Oh, so this is post-Batman Robin. Yeah, this was yeah. for Vertical Limit, yeah. but he brought it up, and that's yeah, that was what he said, and that's why I made the gag about nipples because he he brought it up. He went, they weren't my nipples; they were added <laughs> onto the costume. <laughs> yeah. So for for those people listening to this and thinking it all sounds really good because you're meeting all these people and you're setting up interviews and it's sort of straight to what a student straight out of maybe journalism or something uh, journalism degree might think this is fantastic. There are downsides to this kind of work too, right? I mean, yes, but I certainly would never sit here and 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 tell you that it's uh, you know, oh woe is me. I would never do that because I I produced breakfast for two and a half years. I had some personal issues in my life. Uh, I had a health issue with a, I had a motorcycle accident and I was um, I was on crutches for two years and then shortly after that my marriage broke up and then I. When I started producing breakfast was roughly when my marriage broke up. So there was some personal issues there. So after two and a half, nearly three years of producing breakfast, um, I was I was absolutely burnt out. Uh, I, I alluded to it earlier in in this piece that um, you know there were days you'd go in at four thirty and and finish at ten thirty, and then there were other days you were still there at ten o'clock at night. In fact, uh, I think I touched upon it. The Olympics. My folks were over for the Olympics because it was in Sydney. And uh, we were trying to organise an interview with, uh, let's say, Bruce McAvaney or something, because it was they were the host broadcaster. And the phone rang, and I went. And it was it was uh, it was um, one of the publicists from Seven. We can't get you, Bruce, but can we get you such and such? I said, Oh well, what about if you get me? Uh, what about if you can get me um, Dennis Committee? She goes, No, Dennis is doing such and such. What about Gary Wilkinson? Oh, I can get you, Gary. Okay, can you make sure he tells me this? Tells George the story about such and such. Yep, yeah, put the phone down. My mum goes, What was that about? Oh, they can't get Bruce McAvaney. They going to get uh, such and such and she went it's quarter to 11 when do you stop working and I went I don't mm-hmm. I don't I really don't because you know I remember watching Who Wants to Be a Millionaire and the doctor was on and he got up to half a million dollars he got to the second to last question and I'm frantically trying to throw a tape in the machine to record it so I can use the audio the next morning because it's going to be the buzz topic it's going to be what everyone's talking about that this guy nearly won a million dollars so you need to be across that um, it's a demanding job, a very demanding job, and, and in a way, a thankless job. I mean, you're, you're talking to me about doing these interviews with these celebrities. Um, I hope I'm not going to burst anyone's bubble. I did half of these interviews. You know, the, the, the announcer did the other interviews. So you're the guy talking to um, the publicity machine. You're talking to Di or, or Philippa or whatever, trying to get you know on the, the roll call for um, Robin Williams whatever it may be and then you've got to go to the announcer and say oh we've got to go to a special screening on Tuesday at 2 o'clock and they go oh, I'm busy that day and you know, and you've got to go back and can we go to a different one what about Thursday at 1 yeah okay we can do that and everything and then at the end of the day you rock up to the hotel room and he asks the questions and you go oh maybe short changed it <laughs> you know I really wanted to ask that um, it was a great job it was a great job and there was a lot of a lot of good moments in it and um All right, I'll, 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 I'll try and paraphrase this because it, it's, it's not movies, it's, it's to do with John Farnham. And when he, he launched an album, I think it was 33 and a third, and my best mate's wife is a fan of John Farnham. And I rung her up and I said, John Farnham's coming in on Tuesday, would you like to come in? 
I can't promise anything, but he'll be in and you can come in. Mm-hmm. But bear in mind, she had a nine-year-old and a five-year-old at that stage, and she went, yep! <laughs> <laughs> what are you going to do with the kids? I don't know. I'll sell them. Um, so she organized a babysitter or someone to come in and get the kids off to school. So she turns up and they were living in, I think they were living in Hornsby. If anyone's familiar with Sydney, it's a long way out from Neutral Bay. She got in about seven. The nature of the studio, the way it was set up, was you had a, a radio studio, which would be the size of a small lounge room. Uh, and then the, one of the corners of the room was sort of cut off at about 60 degrees, and there was a window there, and that's the booth that I used to sit in where I could use the intercom to talk to the announcer, tell them if there were people on the phone, tell them if there were traffic delays, whatever. And then at the front of where the studio was, there was another window, that was the newsroom. I put Karen in my news booth, in my, my producer's booth. John Farnham came in, he got in, uh, he got in about five to eight. Uh, he, uh, he was in for the whole hour. He sat in, he'd, he'd worked with George before. George has been in radio for years. And he sat in with George for the whole hour. And at the end of it, you know, nine o'clock, we'd finished our show. We got off, uh, got out of the studio. And they asked John if he would go upstairs to do some drops for the station. And um, at this point, Karen's been sitting in my booth for an hour. And uh, and I just said, oh, John, would you, could I just introduce you? This is my friend, Karen. She she wanted to meet you. And he was really, he was a beautiful guy. He was really friendly cordial everything which is always good because I didn't expect him not to be but you don't know mm-hmm. you really don't know and he was great at everything and then he went upstairs and did some voice drops so I go over to my friend's house about a week later and I said oh, sorry about the John Farnham thing you know I just you know just a bump into the corridor and she went are you kidding I sat through the window and looked at him for an hour and then he shook hands with me and posed for a photo and I went oh I'm a bit too close to this aren't I <laughs> it's a bit it's a bit like that you, you get forget. a bit too close don't yeah, you yeah you forget because it's your job and it should be your job and you should be distracted detracted from it in that regard because you are doing your job you're thinking about the show you're not thinking oh my god we've got Sandra Bullock on the phone you're going this is what I need to do uh, you have to do it like that. But every now and again, you get reminded that, you know, we just had one of the A-list musicians in the country. This is 98. One of the biggest stars this country ever seen in the, in the studio. And my friend shook hands with him. My nephew shook hands with, uh, oh, no. My niece got to meet Ronan Keating. Mm. When she was, she had his posters all over her bedroom wall. Wow. And uh, I'll tell you this only because I think it's funny is that she met Ronan Keating. And he said, oh, what, you've taken the day off school. Because she was 15, I think. And, he, and, and, and she went, no, I had to take the week off. And he went, the week off? And I went, oh, she's from Adelaide. And he, went, he looked at the publicist and he says, oh, where's Adelaide? And I said, it's a 24-hour bus ride. And Ronan Keating looked at my niece and he went, you travelled 24 hours on a bus to come here? And she went, well, I wanted to meet you. And he went, you travelled 24 hours on a bus to meet me? And he went in and did the interview with, with the other announcer. And when he came out, she went, would you mind signing this? And he goes, give me what you want. I'll sign anything. <laughs> so he signed, she signed, he signed like five posters or something, posed for a photo. And then at the end of it, he's left. She's 15, right? She goes into my booth, rings her mother in Adelaide. And she goes, hi, mum. I got to meet him. He signed all my posters. And I didn't cry until he left. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, there's... Well, I, I, sorry, I, I, yeah, I'm waffling now. Sorry. What you're saying is, yeah, there are downsides of the job. Uh, long hours, crappy hours, because you're going and you're getting up at four o'clock in the morning. Uh, yeah, you may still be working at nine thirty at night. In other words, something happens on TV and you've got to be mindful of it for tomorrow. But it's a good job. Mm. You yeah. look back on it fondly. Now I'm not getting up at four in the morning. Yeah, I look back on it fondly. Yeah, I do. Yeah, I mean, I mean, like, and you know what? I'm, I'm, I know those aren't really related to films, those stories. But the fact my niece met Ronan Keating, my nephew met. Or, 
Arnold Schwarzenegger. They're the ones I get the buzz out of. I don't go, oh, wow, I met Henry Winkler. I go, yeah, it was cool I met Henry Winkler. He was lovely and tell a great story. But it's the other people that go, oh, they gush. And I, I sort of bleed off their enthusiasm and their sure. excitement. It's, 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 it, it was, it was, I was pleased I could do that for them, if you know what I mean. You know, if that's mm. not being, uh, you know, silly. But, you know, it was like they got a buzz out of it. That made my day. So the biggest one you were able to gush over and you were a big fan of, who was that? Oh, difficult question. Um, that's a really difficult question. Um, I'm going to make Lloyd laugh now and I'm going to sound like a right idiot when I say Sidney Pollock. Mm-hmm. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> the famous director, actor as well. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's a difficult question. You're putting me on the spot there with that. But yeah, I think probably because I respected him as a director and he was a nice guy. Uh, and he was, um, yeah, all of the above. I mean, it was the, cl- I mean, maybe Jack Nicholson, but, uh, you know, I suppose Sidney Pollock and Jack Nicholson, it's almost that throwback to old Hollywood, if you like, you know, for Hollywood of the 50s and 60s. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, Ashley Judd was lovely. Uh, you know, Angelina Jolie, she was nice. Uh, Pierce Brosnan, kind of cool, but, um, uh, yeah, I probably think Sidney Pollock and uh, told the funny story which I think everyone well uh, most people know by now and that is that the reason why he was in Tootsie was because he'd organised he wanted Dustin Hoffman to play the part and Dustin said no and Dustin said no and then finally Dustin said I'll only do it if you play my agent and that's why he was in Tootsie Um, but the funny thing was he started as as an actor and started directing as it was a way to make ends meet and ended up with him being a much better director than an actor his words much better director than an actor um but he wasn't he was he was a nice guy but mm. i can't think of any that i met that were you know that i you know that i disliked you know they were all nice enough last question we um we asked uh, jith sen our previous interview the same question and we started a bit of a tradition this way so we're going to always finish with the question what was the last thing you saw at the movies at the movies. At the movies. Uh, Tower Heist. Tower Heist. That's Ben Stiller? Yeah. And can you recommend it? I can. I enjoyed it. It's a romp. It's a fun. It's a caper film. Uh, I, I, I did enjoy it. I'm not going to say that it's you know on my must-have list or anything like that, but um, can I put a caveat in there when you ask me about going to the movies? I very rarely go to the movies now. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a home theater set up. Uh, with a projector, and I find it's, it's more pleasant, more enjoyable to get a copy of the film and run it at home. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I've been to the movies like twice in two years. Uh, yeah, yeah, but yeah, and it was purely because I was in Adelaide on holiday over Christmas, and the girl I just told you about the John Farnham thing, she rung up and said, "We're going to the movies. Do you want to come with us?" And we said, "Boxing Day, why not?" Sure. And went, all the and biggest films it. out on Boxing Day. Something like <laughs> that. Yeah, most enjoyable. But uh, I'll I'll just tell you one one last story before we wrap up because it's about Barry Sonnenfeld. I don't know if you guys know this. I, Director of Men in Black? Yes, and that's the point I was going to make. I mm-hmm. had the chance to interview him when he was doing uh, the DVD release of Men in Black. And uh, just so you know, that that wasn't the original plot for the film. And he told me this in the interview. I didn't ask him. I didn't know. But he says, oh, no, no. The, when we were doing Men in Black, it was much more complicated. It was two alien races that were fighting each other, and the Earth was stuck in the middle. Hmm. And then... I wish I had still had the grab that I could give you because the way he said it, he goes, and then some of the power brokers at Fox came to me and said, we think it's a bit too clever. You need to make it simpler than that. And he went, make Men in Black simpler than it is? <laughs> and he goes, and we hit upon the idea that it's one alien nation trying to blow up the Earth. And what we had was we had three scenes. We had the talking dog, 
we had the aliens that were playing chess and a big screen in the control room. And they were the three things that basically said two alien warring nations. Well, the talking dog, we just got the audio track redone. The two aliens, same thing. The big screen in the control room, change the graphic. <laughs> oh, a whole new plot. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, these movies aren't set in stone. You know, but you can find out. You are, well, actually, what you alluded to before, Lloyd, about um, asking questions and which questions you have in mind. I went into that interview with a pretty much a blank sheet and just asked okay. him, to, and that thing just came up out of the conversation that we were having. We were and just, as you say, they're often the best interviews. Oh yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. Because you discover things. You can ask a question that can lead to somewhere else that that uh, that uh, you never knew you would go to if you just had a clipboard with. Um, and I've heard, but well, I, again, I alluded to before uh, about the Savage Garden thing. I heard people reading off a sheet and almost not listening to the answer it was like they went you know the guys from Savage Garden went blah 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 and they went okay uh, now what oh, you know no, yeah. you know, it was like the specific you, sound bites aren't they yeah they're just looking for bits and they're not paying attention to who they're talking to and uh, and yeah they're looking for sound bites and they're you know or or they're very nervous about in this case it was Savage Garden was one of the biggest bands in the world when they released Affirmation they're nervous about getting it wrong and they've gone in with a list of questions so they don't look stupid um, I did that when I first started out and I learned very quickly not to do that you research the wazoo out of the person beforehand or the film or whatever it is you do as much as you can you get it in your head you have bullet points to go into the interview with and then you just figure it out as you go what did your research involve like you didn't have wiki then did you no didn't have any of that stuff. <laughs> wiki I think that was a New Zealand throwing stick wasn't it uh uh, no, what was your what did your research involve? Uh, it involved seeing the movie. Okay, it really did involve seeing the movie. Yeah, you, I mean, I mean, we're talking about ninety eight through two thousand here. So yeah, IMDb existed. It was a great reference tool, which is probably what it still is in a way. It's a reference movie tool. buff anyway, which really yeah, helped, yeah, yeah, pretty much. Uh, but um, yeah, it, it it came down to watching the movie. There's a, there's a great thing a friend of mine told me years ago about radio about having the ability to to, to self-edit in your head and that's particularly relevant when you're on air. Um, if you're doing a competition spot and a lot of stuff in radio when you're doing... Um, when you're listening to the radio and they go, we've got Joyce on the line, oh, your chance to win. No, that often, more often than not, that's pre-recorded during a song and edited. And... One of the things I found I, I got reasonably good at, I think, over the years was the ability to listen to the interview while it was taking place and even have the, have the nous to go, you'd go to ask a question, you'd step over the person talking, you'd let them finish, then you'd pause, and then you'd ask the question again uh, so that when you went in and you edited it, you could cut bits out. And you'd even go, if you stepped over them, go, sorry, what was that you just said about blah, blah? And then they would finish that bit, and then you could cut it out okay, and do the edit. Yeah. Um, and I think doing that, from my background in radio, where I'd have a contestant on the phone, um, you know, they, they call a six or whatever, and they've got to answer the mystery question. And I'd be recording them, and I'd, I'd be waiting for them to get a response. I'm going to give away a trade secret now. I'd be doing things like, hey, you're caller six. And they go, oh, good. And I go, no, that was nowhere near excited enough. You're caller six. Oh, good. No, really? Seriously? You're caller six. Oh, wow. And then you, you cut it up. So they go, wow. <laughs> doing that, I think, put me in good stead years later when I was able to go in to do interviews because I had everything in my head that I wanted to get out of the interview. I knew that's the, probably the trick know what you want to get out of the interview and anything else is a bonus 
So, so you go in. So when you say about research, yeah, I watched Men in Black and I looked at it and I, oh, I uh, did I watch it with a commentary on? I can't remember. There was a booklet that came with it. I remember that. Did you know, is the DOP for the Coen Brothers and Blood Simple? Uh no. <laughs> I, didn't. I did like the fact that he dobbed himself in for uh, Get Shorty. He did say okay, that. Yeah. Uh, that he did say again. It was another thing he said in the interview about spoilers. I said, did you? Oh, that was it. I said, did you feel the urge to fix any spoilers? As in the spoilers, any errors, goofs in the DVD release? You know, yeah. um, you know, like. You know, let's not mention George Lucas, shall we? Um, you know, did you feel he used to fix anything? And and he said, no, no, I love those things. I love all those errors. I think they're great. In fact, he goes, go and get get shorty. There's a scene where where uh, John Travolta pulls up on the driveway from the left and drives out on the left. And he goes, it wasn't until I went and watched it, I went, he drove out the wrong way. I immediately phoned Rotten Tomatoes and said, there's a goof in this film. I'm dobbing myself in, you know. So those things can come out of out of... You do your research, you, you watch the film. More importantly, know your audience. If you're a broadcaster, if you're Margaret and David, you, you look at David Stratton's knowledge of foreign films is spectacular. But he could talk for two hours on foreign films, which would be really boring. He is able to, when he's talking to somebody, encapsulate what's needed for that show and that audience. And I think that is what you have to do all the time if you ever... You, you, Dave, you asked me about um, film students or journalists or things. Never ever go into the interview thinking you're important, the talent is important, but it's what you get out of it that matters. So respect what they do and be aware of the fact that, as I said before, this could be the eighth or ninth one they've done. But the more research you've done, the more you know about the subject, the greater the likelihood is you're going to ask them a question they weren't expecting. Uh, and if you don't follow the clipboard, the dot by dot bullet points of questions, then you have to listen to what they say. Uh, I guess at the end of the day, you're all there for the same reason. Yeah, yeah. They, the they want to promote the film. the film. We want the kudos of being able to say, hey, we've got this person on the show, you should tune in. And at the end of the day, the person gets to hear a, a, a celebrity of some description, blah, blah, blah. I, I, that thing, I, 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 um, I had the chance to interview James Rain once, and, and, uh, and I remember he asked a, I asked a question, uh, oh, what was it now? Uh, he was doing an acoustic set at a, at a, a coffee, sh coffee bar here in, in Canberra. Uh, and uh, and uh, I asked him a question, and I said something about, uh, you know, how do you, if you're going to do an acoustic set, how do you do an acoustic cut down of a song like Shutdown? And he went, oh, well, I don't. I don't like it. And I went, what do you mean you don't like it? You wrote it. And he goes, doesn't mean I have to like it. Now, there's an example of, there's, I can't think of a movie one, but there's an example of if you weren't paying attention, he would have gone, oh, I don't, I don't like it. Okay, next question, blah, blah, blah. You know, but that led on to, oh, just because I wrote the song doesn't mean and I think it's the same thing when you're interviewing actors you know the, you know who was it Richard E. Grant said famously you nobody intends to make a bad film everybody turns up they've read the script they think it's going to work they think it's going to be good and then you realize that there's some red pages been inserted into the script <laughs> and a few days later there are some yellow ones then the blue ones arrive and by the time the green pages are put in there you're thinking oh my god what have I done oh I've signed up for it now I've just got to hope they can make it work <laughs> you know and that's that's the thing but again I, I you know to anyone listening about this that's in journalism school wants to do this stuff it's a very demanding job what I did it's somewhat unrewarding in as much as you don't get the glory because the announcer does but if it's what you want to do that's all that matters fantastic Hawk thank you very much for sitting down with us for an interview I just got to ask for legal reasons can we have your permission to put this online absolutely not <laughs> no way on earth I didn't hang on are you recording this <laughs> of course you can not a problem thanks, mate. thanks very much um, 
As always, you can get any episodes you might have missed at www.podmeifyoucan.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast in iTunes. And if you have some time, go ahead, rate our podcast on there. That'll help us on the iTunes charts and uh, leave us some feedback. Thanks very much. Thanks, guys. All the best.